Welcome back to the Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. My name is Avi Cooper, and I'm joined, as always, by my friends and co-hosts, Tony Brew and Hannah Abrams. How are you both? I am excellent. Doing great. Good to see you guys. Are you feeling repleted? Replete? I think after this episode. Yeah, I have a banana sitting right next to me. Oh, good, 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 good. Because in this episode, you know, it's actually being released just in time for new interns, newly minted doctors who are now realizing that there are many things they don't teach you in medical school. For example, you must buff the potassium to greater than four and make it shine. So Tony, why would you want to revisit a topic that was sure to remind you of being an intern, perhaps bring back some, you know, stressful memories? Well, I'll start by saying I, uh, Maybe I'm the only one of the three of us, but I absolutely loved my intern year. Though at this point, many years removed, I probably have some selective memories. But I also think this topic has very, very interesting physiology associated with it. And my hope, at least, is that we might change some of the practice of maybe juniors and senior residents and, and maybe change the practice before it's even begun for some of the interns. Because I can say with confidence that this practice of repleting potassium to greater than four, it hasn't changed from at least my observations, from the time when I was an intern in 2006 to 2007. I don't know if that is your observation, uh, Avi, or your observation, Hannah, but it's certainly been mine. Well, I feel like the Hannah, you're certainly closer to um, internship than uh, either yes. of us. But I'm... 11 and a half months ago, <laughs> so much has changed. The ye old days. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I think this definitely still happens, and I find it to be one of the topics. To me, this is the domain of the intern. And if they have like read some of the more recent data and want to be firm on only repleting to 3.5, I am happy to stand by them in that. And I don't think that it's my role to nitpick them if they have like heard some of the older wisdom of repleting to 4. But this is definitely something that I think each intern takes very personally and seriously. And I certainly recollect from my internship that sort of, you know, that old schoolhouse rock song, three is the magic number, where like four was definitely the magic number for potassium. Although I think at least now, like things like electrolyte repletion scales, like a lot of this sort of is sort of built in and perhaps interns now are doing less of this and it just sort of occurs based on whatever the scales are written by a hospital. But I suspect that four is generally the number that people are targeting. It's four and two, four and two, four and two, potassium, magnesium, potassium, Occasionally four, two and three. If we're really excited. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> well, Tony, where should we begin? Uh, you know, I, I think it's probably worth beginning with uh, asking the question of why we do all this repleting. Like, what are we actually aiming to achieve? So uh, maybe I'll just ask you, Avi, do you, do you have a sense for like what you were aiming to achieve when you did this as, a, as an intern? Well, there is this idea of euboxemia, right? And so we're, we're just, you know, you want, red, you want red numbers to be, to be black and correct you know, relative abnormalities. But I think part of the goal was to prevent ventricular arrhythmias. Yeah. And I th that's exactly right. Um, uh, you know, whether we like acknowledge it or not, we're largely aiming to prevent ventricular arrhythmias, more specifically ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia. Now with very low values, like less than two and a half milliequivalents per liter, you can get more generalized muscle weakness. But if someone's got a potassium of 3.2, which is often buffed, Generalized weakness really isn't our concern. It's it's the like, let's make sure that we're preventing ventricular arrhythmias. Now, the early evidence for this came from animal studies, as you, as you might imagine. And it was animal studies that showed that infusing a low potassium fluid, which will thereby lower the serum potassium, would cause ventricular fibrillation. Um, so for example, probably the, the most cited study in this domain is from 1954, and it was published by Grumbach, Howard, and Merrill. 
And they did exactly that. They infused a low potassium fluid, lowering the serum potassium, and this caused V-fib in rabbit hearts. And what was really interesting actually about this study when, when you go back and read it is that they didn't find this happening in the rabbit hearts if the potassium is greater than 2.4 or if calcium was absent. So even if the serum potassium was zero, V-fib didn't occur unless calcium was also in the, the fluid. And we may come back to this point a little bit later. Okay. So if you acutely lower the potassium by infusing a low potassium solution, you can provoke V-fib. But is there evidence of the reverse, that the low levels themselves are risky and that fixing the problem actually would fix the risk? So we have some observational data that helps to answer that question at least a little bit. So we have you know, retrospective cohort studies that have looked at patients with acute myocardial infarction. And it's shown that when they have potassiums less than four, this is associated with ventricular arrhythmias. And these early observational studies from the 70s and 80s are really the, like, that's the genesis story of buffing to four is, is these studies. That, that's where four comes from. And I think one of the reasons why it became so implanted in the practice of inpatient doctors is that we don't have randomized control trials supporting repletion, but based on the observational studies, the early guidelines kind of, you know, went with it and made recommendations in the you know, 80s and 90s to err on the side of caution and replete patients with a QNMI to four. And so forevermore, we've been, we've been doing it. So it sounds like the evidence base for this practice is observational studies from the 1970s and maybe some from the 80s, right? So is there any contemporary data in sort of the modern medical context that supports the use of this goal of four for potassium? There certainly is more recent data. Whether or not it supports four is, you know, I think, worthy of discussion. So probably the most well-referenced contemporary study is from 2012, and it was published in JAMA. And it looked at over 38,000 patients, again, with acute MI. That's really where the bulk of the literature is from, is from patients with acute MI. And the rate of in-hospital mortality or in-hospital V-fib or in-hospital cardiac arrest, all of these were flat between three and a half and four and a half milliequivalents per liter, right? So until you got to three and a half or lower, you didn't see an inflection up in rates. Now, this study came out 10 years ago, and I, I can tell you, I haven't really seen any change in practice. I feel like I still see four as the goal. And I, you know, I think we've kind of talked about this at the beginning, but I don't really think much has changed even, even though this study came out. It is really hard to break tradition. It really is. Yeah. I think especially if it was something that someone did as they were told to do this as an intern and just, this is just, you know, and, but, you know, but it's interesting because I think there's, there is an element of sort of a, a question of indication, meaning it sounds like perhaps different patients should have different potassium yes. goals, but we sort of apply this blanket for to everybody. The data you've discussed so far does suggest a correlation between low potassium and ventricular arrhythmias in patients with acute myocardial infarctions. But we replete everybody as if they all have acute MIs, but not everyone had an acute MI. So is there a data to support repleting to four for non you know, non-acute cardiac patients? So probably the 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 data I've seen that most supports four is for patients with heart failure. The data is again observational and there's a little bit of variability in, in the studies, but I would say most of what I have seen supports greater than four. And here the outcomes are, are very similar, right? Looking at ventricular arrhythmias. 
What's interesting is that there are actually other conditions like cirrhosis and, and particularly those patients who are at risk for hepatic encephalopathy where a higher target may also make sense. That's something I haven't heard before. Is there is there any like theory behind that? It's a little bit weird, right? You know, acute MI, heart failure, and then cirrhosis. It seems like where did that come from? And specifically hepatic encephalopathy of the... Yeah, I think I learned this from Elliot Tapper, um, although I feel like everything I about um, cirrhosis I learned from Elliot Tapper. But um, when you have a low serum, serum potassium, that actually enhances renal ammonia generation. And that ammonia generation leads to higher serum ammonia levels. That probably is not unsurprising. And the exact mechanism that, you know, maybe we go over in a, in a future episode, but the key thing is hypokalemia leads to increased ammonia production by the renal, t- uh, by the kidney. And there's actually some interesting data that patients who have hepatic encephalopathy, those with a higher potassium improve more quickly than those patients who have a lower potassium, may, you know, kind of supporting this idea. So I am unaware of any guidelines or good data supporting four for these patients, but I don't put up any fight if people try to keep this the patients with uh, hepatic encephalopathy above four as well. Okay, so there must be like at least probably forty to fifty percent of patients on the average medicine floor who don't have an MI heart failure or cirrhosis, and I, we still replete them. Is there any data about that? As a recurring theme, yes, there is. It's observational and it's you know not that robust. The best data I've seen in this realm is from 2015, published in American Journal of Medicine, and it looked at about 12,000 patients hospitalized with an acute medical condition, so sort of like all comers. And here, the seven-day mortality didn't rise until the potassium fell below 2.9 mill equivalents per liter, so you know, eat, you know, pretty significantly lower than four or even 3.5. A more recent study that I only came across um, you know, within the last few weeks was published in 2019, and actually found that if you repleted patients to greater than 3.5, again, general medical patients, they didn't have any lower rates of arrhythmia. And in fact, the patients that got more potassium, right, got repleted more, had more arrhythmia. And I don't know what to make of that. And, you know, maybe we went overboard and got them over four and a half or over five, but, you know, I'm unaware of really any data that's looked at repletion, and this is one of the studies, and it didn't show any benefit. So why do we end up giving potassium to everyone? Because I mean, there's, you know, there's sort of this idea of like, why do something that's not helpful? There's probably like, how much money are we spending on potassium <laughs> in hospitalized patients? It's on, and it right, doesn't it's, taste good. Patients it's unpleasant. Don't like it. It's, it's unpleasant. It's caustic. It burns. So like, why are we giving this to everybody? Yeah, and I'll say there's some people who've argued that because of the the U-shaped curve of potassium, meaning that at the higher ends, greater than four point five, the risks increase. That there there could be harm if you if you actually get someone above four and a half. But I, I think this is an example of uh, something called indication creep, where we identify an indication for a therapy. Here, the indication would be potassium repletion for patients with acute MI. That's the very narrow initial condition indication. And then we kind of extend that treatment to other groups who are at lower risk, like the patient who's admitted with cellulitis, who's got a potassium of 3.4. Another example that I think all of us have seen is patients who are hospitalized with an acute medical condition. I feel like so many of them get VTE prophylaxis, even if they're low risk. And those patients do not benefit. But there's this sense of like, you know, indication creep off. This patient benefits. Let's just give it to everybody. I suspect you guys in your practice have seen other things that are similar to this, um, even if none immediately come to mind. 
Oh, yeah. I think um, sliding scale insulin, single agent sliding scale insulin in people who don't have diabetes or aren't on insulin at baseline is like yes. six sticks a day and giving blood to people, all people with CAD to get them to a hemoglobin of eight if they're on a cardiology floor, even if they do not have an active event is the other, I think, indication creep I see. Sounds like a lineup of things we do for no reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to like infuse my other passion into this uh, into this particular episode. And for those who listen to the show and don't know, there is a series called Things We Do for No Reason in the Journal of Hospital Medicine uh, that Tony is a big fan of and occasionally is the editor of. Co-editor. Co-editor. Um, but I'll, t- I'll tell you, all of what we've discussed so far kind of assumes two things. It, it first assumes that hypokalemia causes VT and VF. And second, it assumes that increasing a potassium via supplementation is going to mitigate that risk. We've mentioned a few times that there's no RCT data proving the second assumption. But I'll tell you, the f- there are some who even call into question uh, the first assumption. So are you suggesting that although hypokalemia and VTAC and VFib are correlated, that it doesn't mean that one is causing the other? That's exactly right. So what what are you proposing as an alternative? So th- This is my proposal. Uh, this is something that I've, I've read, but it, it makes sense. And it's, uh, as you might imagine, instead of the, one of these two things causing the other, right, the hypokalemia causing the ventricular arrhythmias, it's instead a third thing, which is causing both the hypokalemia and the VTVF. And so um, I'll just pose to maybe Hannah this time, you know, if you could imagine something particularly in the milieu of an acute MI patient that might lead to hypokalemia and also increase the risk of ventricular arrhythmias, is there anything that comes to mind? So, you know, the first thought is like, the substrate of that patient might have a myocardium and perhaps a conduction system prone. But then also the event of an acute MI might be associated with sort of a catecholaminergic surge, a catecholamine surge. I think that that's right. I think associated. both of those things are are absolutely relevant. And, and epinephrine in particular is what people often will invoke here because epinephrine causes hypokalemia and epinephrine um, almost certainly causes ventricular arrhythmia. So for the hypokalemia, epinephrine activates the beta-2 receptors. And this leads to increased activity of the sodium-potassium ATPase, and that causes movement of potassium into cells and a drop in the serum-potassium. I mean, I, I guess I've never really thought about this before, but how does it actually cause like BTVF? You know, the exact mechanism of the cause, um, I, you know, that escapes me, but the, I'm going to have to be careful here. This is another example of an association, right? Catecholamines are absolutely associated with ventricular tachycardia and fibrillation in patients with acute MI. But it's been seen so repeatedly, and things like beta blockers appear to sort of blunt that catecholamine response and blunt VTVF that I think there's a strong belief that there's a causative role there. The exact sort of molecular mechanism, I don't I don't recall. But don't beta blockers increase your potassium? Yes, they do. And this is where everything gets very complex. You know, beta-2 antagonism definitely blunts the decrease in potassium you get with epinephrine. Um, and what's really fascinating, and this observation was pointed out to me like years ago when I was a resident, but most medications that have a mortality benefit in heart failure and MI, they increase potassium, right? Think about it. Beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, aldosterone antagonists, even SGL2 inhibitors, they all are associated with higher potassium levels. 
right? And the things that lower potassium, like hmm, um, loop is... diuretics, are not associated with increased life. It's so interesting, especially because it's beta-2 particularly, and we often use yeah. beta-1 selective beta blockers in this setting. Okay, so do all of those associations potentially suggest that there is a causative association between hypokalemia and VTVF? Yeah, we're going a little bit of circle. Are we that. going back? Yes. So, so I wanted to like put it out there that that like there is an alternate explanation, but ultimately I do believe that the hypokalemia has a causative role here. But Hannah, you mentioned this idea of like the sensitive myocardium. Like I don't think that just hypokalemia alone is enough. You need that sensitive myocardium in the setting of Medicunamaha. You need the proarrhythmic milieu that maybe epinephrine affords you. It's kind of like... A, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but just a potassium of three point two is probably not enough to do it. Exactly, a perfect VT storm. But you know, if we do assume a causal relationship, what ex- how exactly would hypokalemia lead to ventricular arrhythmias at all? So there's a, a bunch of different mechanisms, and I'll just mention one. Yeah, I think the key thing to to know is that one of those mechanisms starts with decreased activity of the sodium potassium ATPase. Because if you have a low serum potassium, there's less of a drive to move potassium into cells. And so the, that sodium-potassium ATPase is less active. And this has actually been shown in, in rat myocytes. And when this happens, intracellular sodium concentration rises in parallel. This leads to a decrease in a sodium-calcium exchanger. And so then the intracellular calcium level rises. And then this leads to intracellular calcium concentrations causing an increase in the calcium calmodulin kinase 2 activity, and then ultimately early after depolarization mediated VT. Now, that's a lot of steps, but I think the key thing to remember is that the hypokalemia leads to less activity of the sodium-potassium ATPase, right? That's probably like that. That's the initial event in, in this particular mechanism, and there's a bunch of others. Yeah. And so if repolarization is part of the mechanism and suddenly you have no potassium is the or excuse me you have no calcium present is that the idea that if you didn't also have hypocalcemia or profound hypocalcemia you wouldn't also get hypokalemic ventricular arrhythmia yeah if we think back to that study from 1954 the first study i mentioned right the i noted that calcium was absolutely required for hypokalemia induced vfib so it, it does seem to be, and this is unsurprising if you think about the cardiac action potential, right? It's not just potassium. There's like calcium has a huge role. And so there's a lot of interconnectedness with, with calcium, potassium, sodium. They all matter. And I think there's probably a relationship between the, the, the levels of these uh, different electrolytes and the propensity for ventricular arrhythmias. And, you know, Tony, understanding that we don't offer medical advice, but as someone who's thought a lot about this and read a lot about it, how do you approach potassium repletion? So, you know, for acute MI, which I'll be honest, I don't take care of a lot of patients with acute MI unless they mistakenly end up on my inpatient medical service. But that being said, I I think it's reasonable to to actually aim for three and a half. But I'm not going to like berate someone who aims for four because though the data from 2012 suggests three and a half is enough, um, you know, there's older data that shows that four is okay. Right. So that's, that's patients with acute MI. For patients with cirrhosis, uh, patients with heart failure, I generally aim for four. I think there's better data supporting four for um, uh, patients with heart failure than for cirrhosis. But um, if I'm able to achieve it, I, I try to do that for both of those. And then what about like your gen med uh, patients? Right, because I'm, a, I'm a, a generalist, so I don't 
take care of that much acute MI, that much heart failure, though, again, those patients end up on my list. I do take care of a lot of cirrhosis. For them, I actually, I'm okay with anything above three. And what I often will tell the house staff is that it's probably valuable to see if the hypokalemia persists without repletion, because that should be a clue to something that something's going on, right? Maybe the patient has alcohol withdrawal and they have increased catecholamines leading to that shift. Maybe they have hypertension and this is a clue that they have increased aldosterone levels. And so what I would offer you is that instead of just reflexively repleting every potassium that's 3.2, see what happens the following day if they have you know a, a relatively low risk for ventricular arrhythmias and then ask like why is it low in the first place? Like what are we doing that's that's causing the hypokalemia? Incredible, incredible. I think that might save some interns potentially a little bit of heartbreak. Or a little, uh, a little heartache with all of bit. that. Um, and to all the new interns, I would say if you have questions about K repletion, you just should potassium. Um, all right. And with that, <laughs> Tony, do you have any take-home points for us? Yes. Um, this idea of a gold potassium of four, buffing to four, um, that all came from studies of, of acute MI. More recent studies suggest that three and a half to four and a half is probably our sweet spot for acute MI patients. Repleting to greater than four for everyone else um, who you know doesn't have acute MI, doesn't have heart failure, doesn't have cirrhosis is a lot less evidence based, um, and it may be that you know just keeping them above three is satisfactory. Is you know that's enough. And then finally, you know, if you think about one mechanism of hypokalemia-induced VT and VF, uh, just remember that it begins with decreased function of that sodium-potassium ATPase, like that thing that basically makes every single cell in our body function appropriately. Tony, that was just bananas. Yes. (laughs) now, Now I get to eat mine. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to the episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash CuriousClinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians.